just want to give a little background on this text um, before we dive in. Um, this is a song of ascent. Um, this is the Israels singing as they go to worship God in Jerusalem. Um, this song in particular is um, celebrating the historical act of the Ark of the Covenant being brought to Jerusalem, either for the first time or for it to be placed in the Holy of Holies in the temples after it was finished. Um, but the idea is that the, the Ark of the Covenant is finally being placed where it's supposed to be, um, symbolically placed in the temple, which is a, another symbol of God dwelling with his people. Um, so it's kind of a big deal. Uh, the, the psalm is ultimately the celebration of um, the people of Israel being able to worship their God in his very presence. Um, that's the idea, the idea that we're going to go after, is God being with his people. Um, and because of that, um, also God um, blessing his people as they worship him. So this historical moment um, in and of itself actually can be counted as a miracle uh, because, uh, as we'll read, um, we'll read about this field of Jaar, uh, this, this fields, if you translate that literally, this fields of woods, um, which is most likely a, a shortening of a city called Kirith uh, Jiarim, um, where the ark had been basically lost and forgotten for about 60 years um, until David finally found it after sending out 30,000 soldiers to find the ark, found it, um, and moved it to Jerusalem to be um, in the capital city amongst the people. And so our question that we're going to be asking as we now go to read is, what is the psalmist saying? And how does this psalm relate to us given that this ark, this ark of the covenant and the temple are no longer seemingly relevant um, to the worship of God in the church era? So let's jump in. This is God's word from Psalm 132. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord. And go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. And let your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body will, I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. There I'll make a horn to sprout for David. That I prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame. But on him... His crown will shine. Let's go ahead now in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true, that it is relevant for us. And Lord, I pray that um, as we go now to study it, we get to understand it more, that you would um, open our eyes to those, those truths. Give me out of the way that your faith, your, your word um, would stir in us faith. In your son's precious and holy name we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So in our text for this afternoon, um, the, the psalmist is making three petitions, uh, three petitions of the Lord. And because of where we stand in the, in the scope of the history of God's people, um, we actually see God's response to these three petitions. So what are they and what do they have to do with us? Well, the first petition that we see in this text is for David's hardships to not have been in vain, to not be futile. Um, Rebecca and I have been watching the show about, a, I'm not going to say the name because it's an inappropriate name, but it's about an extremely wealthy family who is defrauded and loses everything and ends up living in this stumpy little motel in a very unfortunately named town. And the father, a character named Johnny Rose, um, is tasked kind of by himself and also implicitly by his uh, his family to come up with some way to kind of gather the same kind of funds they used to have, the, the same social clout they have. Um, and since I'm only two seasons in, there's not really many spoilers I can share, um, so you're welcome. Um, but everything he's been doing is seemingly in vain. Nothing he comes up with seems to work. And as he's um, constantly coming up against this wall of failure, um, what, we're, what he's realizing is that it's a completely new world in like this business world. Um, he doesn't quite fit in with this new up-and-coming influencer crowd. Um, he doesn't understand the, the new business practices and the new models because that's just not the way the world worked when he was there. And this realization hits him um, and causes this existential crisis. And in a show that's normally just li- like Rebecca and I are laughing out loud through most of the show, um, the, the season ends with him kind of breaking down, getting drunk, and, and wallowing in self-pity. And it's kind of a, a, a stark contrast from what the rest of the show had been up until that point. Wallowing in the, him wallowing in this self-pity and him openly kind of angry that his adult children who up until that point had lived with him and had, uh, had uh, leaned on him for everything um, had started to flourish when they were kind of put up against this, this, um, this hardship and become thriving, even though he couldn't find work um, for himself. So all of this, all of his work, either previous or the work that he was doing currently, it seemed to be in vain. And while you know, it can be seen as funny and it's easy to kind of laugh at the futility, maybe it's an awkward laugh, uh, but there's a reason why this, this particular scene hits so hard. Because there's a reason why like the Nazis in World War II um, in, uh, made their prisoners in concentration camps do futile labor. There's a reason, like th- this futility, this idea of everything you're doing turning back nothing, it all being in vain, it's, it's psychologically crushing. It's, it's, it's devastating. And <clears throat> if we don't take a moment to realize that the, uh, the psalmist is couching his entire um, psalm in the fact that David's life could have been absolutely devastating. I think we miss part of the reason why the psalmist wrote in the first place. You see, if we look at David's life chronologically without the end result in our minds, you know, the way he would have experienced, the way he would have lived it, um, it's easy to see how he might have simply just given up and thought everything was... Um, was futile. Everything was vain. In, in the words of, uh, of the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities. And it's easy to gloss over this fact because we know the end result of David's life. Um, it's easy to gloss over the fact that his life was hard because we know the end. But this hardship prefaces the rest of the psalm 
Um, and I think it benefits us to consider just briefly kind of a, an outline of David's life. First off, David was the eighth son of Jesse. His father saw him um, as not being worthy to be brought before Samuel as a potential king uh, candidate. His role in the family was simply to work the fields. Um, he, he didn't have much responsibility outside of that. He didn't have um, the, the, the clout or the social standing to even be considered worthy of, hey, bring all of your sons to me. Jesse forgets about David. After he does come to Providence through the work of God, he's given the job of trying to soothe the volatile king Saul, um, specifically when Saul was at his like craziest. Whenever Saul was having like a psychotic break, David's job was to soothe him, the, the man who could, could just kill him outright at any moment. Uh, David spent most of his young adult life fighting in wars, either as a foot soldier or, or a general or working his way up through the, uh, the, the ladder there. Um, and then when he wasn't fighting in wars, he was fleeing from Saul, um, who was trying to kill him, living in caves, hiding out, um, running for, for his life, literally. Um, when he finally got to ascend the throne, he actually had to fight a civil war to take control of all um, the dominion that God had given him. He ruled for a little while, and then he committed that, that horrible sin, that infamous sin with Bathsheba, um, and then had to deal with the fallout of all of that. Um, not just the personal um, turmoil that comes with him committing adultery, but um, also getting called out publicly for his sin, um, and then also losing the baby, um, which I can't imagine. Then, um, later on in his life, one of his children rapes one of his daughters. Um, one kid kills another of his kids. Um, the same, same murderer child usurps his throne. David has to flee for his life for several more months. Um, that son dies at the hand of David's like closest general. Um, he has to fight in several more wars. Uh, his sin of taking a census when God had told him not to um, directly causes the death of 70,000 Israelites, um, a fact which God himself makes David aware of. Um, and then at the end of his life, David is so weak and impotent that um, he becomes kind of a, this puppet king who has to be told what to do, has to be told to, hey, you need to actually like tell us who your successor is, and you should choose this guy. He becomes this puppet king um, who doesn't really make decisions for himself. David's life was hard. <laughs> Might be an understatement to say David's life was hard, but he suffered, he fought, he paid dearly for his sins, but at the end of every episode, at the end of every every hardship, David kept coming back to God knowing that the God of his fathers, the God of Abraham and Jacob and Isaac was his God and that God loved him. David kept coming back to God. He made mistakes. He, he had times where he did wallow in self-pity, just like Johnny Rose. Um, he, he committed very serious sins, um, but he always kept coming back. He always kept repenting and he kept pursuing God with new zeal. Um, in fact, uh, from this psalm, we actually might argue that, that David was a little overzealous in his desiring to please God. He was a little overzealous in making this vow because if you know a little bit of the, the history there, um, David never actually completes this vow. He makes a vow that he, he will not rest until he finds a place for the temple until, he, he, until God has a house uh, uh, for his people to, be, to worship him in, um, but he never completes it. It's actually Solomon, his son, who, who builds the temple. 
And yet the psalmist is petitioning God to remember David's hardships and to remember this vow that he made, this vow that you know he couldn't keep as a reason for, for God to, to bless the people, as a reason for God to, to show grace and mercy to the people. Um, it seems that this vow that David is, um, is giving here in Psalm 132 is actually just an elaboration on the vow that he gives God in 2 Samuel 7. This is where David promises, <coughs> sorry, this is where um, David promises to build God's temple. And God says, no, but because of your desire to be with me, I will build you a house. And I will build you a family and I will build you a royal lineage and a throne from which your descendant will um, will rule from forever and ever. Uh, The point is not that whether or not David could keep this vow that he had made, but that God saw David's heart when he made it. God saw David's heart in that he wanted to continue down this path that God had set him on. He wanted to continue in life with God as his shepherd and to live life the way that God um, had, had called him to live. And it seems to us that David was willing to risk, risk it all toward that end, to live life, um, to live life serving God. He was at, very, at the very least, he was willing to, to risk the comfort and the rest and the peace that, that was, um, it was, it was his to have as king simply to, to find a place to build a, a temple. You see, the, the vow itself, though it was hasty and though God ultimately rejects it, it was a deep expression. It was a deep expression of, of love for God. And it showed David's desire to dwell in God's house. That's what it is. It is David saying, God, I love you so much and I want to dwell in your house. Let me let me give up my rest. Let me give up my peace. I, I, I can't I won't sleep a wink until we get your your temple and your house built. But that's not the plan for God. That's not God's plan. That's not what God had in mind for him. But were we to be so overzealous in our worship of God that we would risk the comfort, the rest that God has given us to serve him? Were we to be like David, um, that no matter what hardships we face, no matter uh, how futile our jobs or our our relationships seem, that we could want nothing more than to worship God, to be in his presence, to be filled by his spirit, and to live as he has called us to live. That's what this petition is, is, is us saying, Lord, let David's vow be our vow. That we would want nothing more than to serve you and live life um, as, as you have called us to. And this isn't because of um, David's zealousness or our zealousness would actually merit anything. But we can make this vow, we can pray this prayer on the basis of Christ's death. And his resurrection. We can claim these promises of God that we read about starting in verse 13 um, where the psalmist calls on God to remember uh, David's suffering. We get to call on God and ask him to remember Christ's suffering. A more perfect, more perfect suffering. This kind of leads into our second petition where the psalmist, that the psalmist is making, which is he, he petitions God that David's vow would be fulfilled. 
says David couldn't fulfill it. David didn't complete it. But Lord, please complete David's vow on his behalf. So we're having this, we have this petition based on a vow. So what is the vow? Well, I've kind of talked about it already. It's David saying, I want to choose a spot and build a house for you, God. I want you to be with your people. I want your presence to be here um, with your people as they worship you. The psalmist kind of makes that, that further statement as he says, arise, O God, and be with your people. Um, that, 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 is the, that is the request of the psalmist. And as we've already pointed out, God's response to David essentially was a big fat no. Um, but God says, look, if I wanted a temple, if I wanted a house, I could have made one by now. I could have asked Abraham or Isaac or Jacob, any of the patriarchs. I could have asked Moses or the judges. I could have asked any of them to make me a house. But I don't, I don't need a temple to be with my people. But because of your desire, I'm going to bless your house. You see, the, the vow that David makes here, though it's hasty, the vow as recalled by the psalmist isn't necessarily about the vow itself, isn't about the, the building of the temple, because at least from the psalmist's perspective, the, the temple was probably already built. And this is a song of ascent that they would sing as they go to the temple. Um, or at the very least, the psalm was written after the ark had been found and, the, and been placed in Jerusalem so that people could come and worship um, at it. Um, this psalm is, remember this psalm is, is recalling a historical event. This, this, this psalm is not about the building itself, but it's about God's presence with his people. It's about God being present with his people as they worship him. And it, it's about what that presence, what God's presence will mean for the people. It's what, what will it mean? Well, verse 9, let your priests be clothed in righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy. God is offering righteousness and joy. His presence brings those things to fruition. You see, the Israelites, as an ancient Near Eastern people, they couldn't really understand this, this concept of God being divorced from uh, a geographical area, being divorced from, from a temple. Like if you want to be in God's presence, if you want to be in a God's presence, you had to be in their country. And, and specifically, you had to be in their temple where they were worshipped because that's where they they dwell. But God, our Yahweh, the God of Israel, our God, he had no need for any of that because <coughs> he, could, he simply was with his people. The Israelites should have known this, even though they had trouble seeing this, because they had the signs of, uh, of God's power in Egypt when he gave the plagues and said, hey, here, here is... Um, here is my power over even the Egyptian gods in their homeland, in their country. I'm going to do this thing and they, they can't stop me. They, they should have seen this in the fact that as they wandered around in the wilderness, God led them by a pillar of fire and a cloud as they, as they wandered or even as uh, the cloud covered the top of Mount Sinai. Like they should have understood that God isn't tied down to this geographical place. But in their minds, that's just not how it works. If you wanted to be with a God, if you wanted to be near um, your God, you needed to be um, in their temple. So God isn't tied down to this one geographical place. He's with his people and he will continue to be with his people. But despite this reality, despite this fact and the, the fact that God implicitly tells David this, God still allows for this temple to be built. He still allows for, for a place of worship for him to be to be built and he gives specific instructions 
regarding his layouts because he cares about how he's worshipped. And he gives his people, he condescends to his people in a way that they can't understand, in a way that they, they would actually get. Um, he gives them a, a visible place for God um, to be in their lives. And so the petition is, for the psalmist at least, is that he's making of God, is to descend to his mercy seat, to be present in the temple as the pilgrims make their way to Jerusalem. This is the, this is the psalmist's prayer, is that God would be present with his people and they would be able to worship at his footstool. They would be able to give him glory and to give him honor and to pray and to offer him prayers and sacrifices. And so as believers in the church era, we get to pray this same prayer, do we not? That the Holy Spirit would be present in our worship, that, our, that we may worship at his footstool, that we may, uh, as his saints, shout for joy, that his face would be turned to us and we would be able to bask in his glory. Um, but there, there's even more than that. Maybe you, you've seen these commercials of um, the progressive insurance commercials um, where a guy named Dr. Rick um, goes out with a bunch of millennials who have recently bought new homes. Uh, and he has these seminars where he, he does stuff like teach them how to use their new smartphone, like find the science button, or teaches them, hey, you shouldn't speak on speakerphone um, while you're walking to the grocery store. Teaches them stuff like how to pronounce the word quinoa. Um, or to not offer unsolicited advice at, at hardware stores. Um, he's, he's giving these seminars to people who are becoming their parents, right? Like this is like the, the millennials greatest fear, becoming their parents. Um, but that's just who we as humans are, isn't it? That's just who we are. We become like our parents because we've spent significant time with our parents. Our parents, we become our parents because our parents' personalities have been indelibly modeled and imprinted on us. We can't escape it. It's inevitable because proximity breeds this similarity. Um, and <coughs> this psalmist sees this, sees this simple truth that, that this proximity breeds similarity. And he, he's praying that God's proximity to his people would create in them that they would become like him. That God's people, as they draw close to God, and to a lesser extent, as they draw closer to other believers, that they, in them would be inspired true righteousness. They would become more like God. That we would be shaped by being in God's presence. And this is, this is such a simple truth, isn't it? This is a simple truth that we become like who we surround ourselves with. I mean, we do this implicitly when we surround ourselves with people we want to be like, right? We all instinctually know, know that to be true. And here God is showing us that, uh, look, it, it works with him as well. If, if we want to be like God, well, we need to dwell in his house. If we want to be like God, if we want to truly be righteous and truly have joy and truly uh, be saved, we, we dwell in his house, we surround ourselves with believers, and ultimately change will eventually happen as, as God's presence starts to, to wear on us, as we begin to shape, uh, be shaped by God's love and by God's grace. So we can and we should pray, like the psalmist prays here, that the fullness of David's vow would be made complete in our lives, that God would be present with his people, that we would be able to 
dwell in his house, that we would uh, do so with a zeal that's, motivi- that's motivated by the joy that we, we have in his presence. This is, this is God's desire for us as he's given us this psalm that we may sing it, that we may, we may pray it for ourselves, that we would have a zeal for him to, be, to want to dwell in his house, to want to be present with him. But there's a, a, a third and final petition, um, and that is for God to remember his covenant promises to David. He want, the, the, the psalmist is asking God to remember his covenant promises to David. And to be honest, this is probably less of a, a petition and more of a celebration. But for the sake of symmetry in the sermon, it's a petition. Um, so here we are. Um, but this is, this is the psalmist saying, on, remember David. Remember his hardships. Remember his vow. Praise God that he has kept his promises. Praise God that he, he is with us. That he is, he is going to give us a, a, a Messiah. That he is going to continue to bless uh, Israel. That he's going to continue to bless his people based on their covenant faithfulness. This is, this is a, a, a great and wonderful truth that after, the, after petitioning the Lord on the basis of David's hardships and zeal, um, the psalmist can celebrate, can truthfully celebrate the oath that God had made to the people. And the oath that God had made to David. And so he can look forward. He can look forward to this wonderful reality, this wonderful truth, this wonderful future um, of a coming Messiah. He can look forward to this, this, this kingdom of God where, where his kingdom will be secure. It will be secured forever. That God's anointed one um, would reign supreme. And that his enemies would be put to shame. Like he, that's what the psalmist is looking forward to. He's looking forward to ultimately the coming of Jesus. The one that God promised would come from this royal lineage that he established in David. He, the one that the psalmist is looking forward um, to celebrating as, he, as he's celebrating this reality. His coming future reality is a reality that we actually possess. It's a reality that we actually have. You see, brothers and sisters in Christ, like we don't need a temple to dwell in the house of God. We are the temple in which God dwells. We are the temple in which, which God dwells. You know, we have received the promises that David has longed for. The, the Messiah has come. He's rescued us from our sins. He presents us blameless before God because of, uh, of his righteousness his spirit dwells in us in a way that, as, as verse 13 says, we, we can be the Zion in which God has promised to dwell forever. We receive the abundant blessing that he's promised to forgive. We, we have been clothed with salvation that only he can offer. We can shout for joy knowing that his anointed one sits on the throne and will soon return to make his enemies, our enemies, his footstool. That he will put death, he will put to death evil and wickedness, and he will make all things new. These are the, the promises that God gave to David, and these are the promises that God has given to you and me. This covenant promise of salvation. Thanks be to God that He's given this promise. Thanks be to God that we can call on Christ, that we can rely on Christ. 
freely give them to us. Let's pray to him now. Father God, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for this reality that we are, uh, in fact, um, we are, in fact, in possession of your, your salvation. We have it. It is secured, not by our works, not by our zeal, not by anything other than your son's work on the cross and the promise that you've made to us. So, Father, remember that. Remember those promises. Remember those promises and help us to help us to remember those promises. As your son's precious. Holy name we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.